0: From Boca Raton, Florida, this is Behind the Bema. On this episode, it's the Season 2 premiere. On the first episode of this season, the rabbis are joined by Judge Al Hellerstein, longtime federal judge of the Southern District of New York. Judge Hellerstein discusses his Judaism's influence on his jurisprudence, shares some memorable cases and experiences from his time on the bench, and reflects on the recent passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Also, the rabbis discuss their takeaways from a most unusual Rosh Hashanah, what does the future hold for big shuls and all shuls, and how the rabbis draw inspiration from ordinary people in the community? All this and more, Behind the bema.
1: Good evening, everybody. I'm Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, joined with my dear colleagues and friends, Rabbi Philip Moskowitz and Rabbi Josh Brody. It's Wednesday night, 9 p.m., and we are here to take you... Behind the bema. How come every Wednesday night there's a pause and I'm unsure whether you know that that's the cue for your line? <laughs> This basically, is That's every conversation we ever have. <laughs> that's pretty much true. This is season two, episode one, which I think represents overall our 24th episode. And wow. I, I, we, at first we called it Coffee Talk. It wasn't called Behind the Bema when we first started. So, you know, Rabbi Brody, you get a pass for the first few episodes. But I think for the last 15 or so, every week, I, I wait in that pause. And I, I don't know if it's clear to you that that's when you're supposed to come in.
2: That's usually the time that I'm also trying to share it on Facebook. So it's always That's like fine. a multi there. there.
1: I got gotcha. you. Well, did you figure it out? Did you get it done this time? Oh, no, no I can't wait, find wait. it. There we go. Now you can. You ready? Check now. Check now. There you go. Yeah. We've got listeners that are already starting to text. First of all, welcome back, everybody. It's Wednesday night, 9 p.m. We're so grateful and glad to be spending time together with you, our beloved friends, audience, and listeners from around the globe. As always, we welcome and we invite your questions, your comments, suggestions of topics for us to discuss, what you want to hear more about, questions for any of us in particular. We are open books. We are behind the bima. So whether you're watching on Facebook behind, or you're watching on YouTube or you're listening to the podcast after the fact, you can always be in touch with us. We love to hear your comments, questions, and thoughts. So welcome back. This is our first episode of the new year. This is a brand new year. Rosh Hashanah. We are in now 5781. Tafshin Shem aleph. And uh, it's exciting. First episode of the new year. What, what was that, Brody? Rabbi Brody, what was that? Season two. Oh, season two. This is big. It's a new. It's a release. We've been brought back for a second season. There was some <laughs> discussion online. Somebody asked, have you been renewed? Is there season two? And the truth is, I, I'm not going to lie. Our agents did get a little bit gridlocked. There was some discussion. There was some questions with YouTube, with Facebook, with some of our sponsors. Um, our lawyers representing us, they were asking a big number. And they were able to work it out and get it done. And we are back. We are back for season two. Yeah, part part of
2: the issue was whether or not they're going to put me back in the show. That was <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's been part of the issue. That the- was on the list. That was on the list. That's correct. <laughs> that's correct. It. But in all seriousness, we are making double the salary we made in the first season. Two times zero is zero. That's not to say our sponsors are not generous. They are, and we appreciate it. But every penny of it, it goes to the Booker. Synagogue and to produce the show. And we always invite and welcome your uh, sponsorships. So if you'd like to sponsor a future episode, we are happy to feature your product or to promote your service. Um, either way, we're grateful for your generosity. So let us know if you'd like to. Um, l'chaim to everyone. The new year. Tachel HaShana. Ubir at The new year ring in filled with brachos. Someone threw me off in shul on, on Rosh Hashanah and they said, Hey Rabbi, happy new year. It's like New Year, that's January 1st. I was thrown <laughs> off and I was like, Taka, you know, Rosh it's Hashanah's new year. new year. We don't think about it. we say Ksibu or you have the tongue twister. One of you know in the rabbinic life, should we go behind the bima for a moment? In rabbinic life, there are moments on the Jewish calendar. We've talked about the absolute panic of having to know what night of Svhira it is every night. So one of my rabbinic panic moments is the Lashanah Tova <laughs> and then there's it. that
3: awkwardness. Do you just say like, Lamar do you say to you as well? And if you exactly. have a long line, it's it's really hard. But I so miss my gotta,
1: favorite you text. Grammar, you you got to get the grammar right to to do it to the whole community at the end of announcements at night. Then each person lines up. They're so nice. They're so kind to come up. We love interacting with each person. And like you just said, do you just kind of say, or do you go through that whole formula the people listening have no idea what we're talking about. This is the least problems that they have, and it should be the least problem. It is the least problem that we have, but those are the moments of panic. Anyway, it's a new yeah, yeah. year. Shana Tova, everybody. mean,
2: Also, is it, is it L'shana Tova or Shana Tova? There's a whole group of people that's Shana Tova, Shana Tova, and there's a whole group of people that they sign L'shana Tova. And I, I don't understand L'shana Tova.
1: Interesting, what interesting. I think it can go either way. I think Shana Tova, Shana Tova Umisuka, Shana Tova U'metuka, there's a whole lot of ways you can go with this. No, so and then right. and
3: then there's Yantif. You have to know who to say good Yantif to, who to say Chag Sameach to. Like, there's a whole science to that that shabbat I don't shalom. think people really appreciate to. Right, good Shabbat, right. Shabbat Shalom. You have to know right. what that person is looking for and then you got to give it to them in the greeting.
1: You know, it's interesting you say that because you don't have to know that, but we try to know that. Meaning- right. If you don't care about people and you want them to live on your terms, then you offer your greeting and you don't really care what their greeting is. But if you want to show your diversity and that you care and connect with people of all kinds of backgrounds, then you try to anticipate. You know, when we when we rotate the minyanim and we speak in different minyanim, we'll deliver a similar themed Russia. but when we deliver it to the svaradim, we speak in svaradit. And when we deliver it in the Minyan, maybe we'll throw in like the three Yiddish words that we know all together collectively combined. And when we speak in the Ashkenazim and so on. So yeah, you don't have to, but it's a nice way to it's it, there's nothing inauthentic about that. Or authentically trying to show that
3: we, we care about connecting with people where it. they
1: are and on their level. So
3: But I miss my favorite it, text for you this year. My favorite text. You didn't yeah. send it to me. I was disappointed. Rosh Hashanah ended. What text should I have gotten? It's in the books. Oh, it's
1: it's in in the the books. books. Absolutely. I said it to my wife. Yeah, my whole family makes fun of me. But yeah, Rosh Hashanah 2020, Rosh Hashanah 5781. In the books. In the these, book. these are like mile markers. Rabbi Moskowitz, you trained for a marathon. You were a runner. I never did. But I can imagine you pass certain mile markers, and they represent progress towards that finish line. And each mile marker that you haven't ripped something, pulled something, collapsed, keeled over, you're, it's worth celebrating. So you know, to me, I, after the first day, Rosh Hashanah, I said to my wife and family, they already know me, said, first day, Rosh Hashanah, in the books. Motzei Rosh Hashanah, in the books. Looking forward to saying Shabbat Shuvah. In the books, so yeah, that definitely is a is a phrase and a text I usually send.
2: I will tell you, I was in the gym this past week, and I, you know, everyone knows that for the Jews it's Rosh Hashanah. So everyone's wishing, you know, Happy New Year. You said Happy New Year, and everyone was that's not Jewish was like they really want in on this New Year. Like you just get that feeling that there's an excitement that people really want to just start fresh now. Right. So that's amazing. I agree.
1: I, it's a new year more than ever. We want to more turn, than ever. On, on the turn the page. Yeah. Turn the page, new year, fresh start, new beginning, blank slate. Unfortunately, it's still a similar reality, but we can have a new attitude towards it and, and hopefully it'll become a new reality soon.
3: What are, what are some takeaways you guys had from Rosh Hashanah? Obviously, an enormous amount of work went into it. Um, what were some thoughts? You know, Obviously, it was a very different year. Um, so in addition to the regular Rosh Hashanah perspectives, what, what was a little bit different this year that you came away with?
1: I'll tell you, I, I was thinking tonight, and I reserve the right to use this in some other form in the next couple of days or weeks, um, but I was thinking tonight because I went to speak in daven at one of the developments near the shul where there are several uh, seniors who live. They're not yet comfortable coming back to shul. So outside, distanced with masks, I spoke to them. And as I looked at them, I realized that um, it's this week's parasha. Davening wasn't the same without the foundation of our seniors. You know They are the rock. They're the foundation. They have the history. They've lived rich lives. They've overcome adversity. And their absence made us incomplete. And I'd say a lot of young moms, in other words, the segments or demographics of the community who contribute to the tapestry of our diversity and make us whole, they're not being there despite the fact that we had hundreds and hundreds. And I think it was over a dozen services across the campus, indoor, outdoor, uh, all kinds of levels. Um, But still, the demographics who weren't there rendered us incomplete and there were some older people and they felt confident they were there but as a whole as a unit that group wasn't and i hope i, I don't know if they stay up to watch behind the bima i'm not sure they're watching right now um but, but i hope they know and I, I think it's important for us to get across to them that they were missed and they weren't just missed as a form of pity or sympathy from us to them they were missed in a way that we feel incomplete we were robbed we didn't when you daven and you look at, at at people in their 90s Holocaust survivors. I don't want to mention names because I don't want to leave others out, but you look at some of the icons of our community, some of the heroes of our community. And when you think about their life story, and when you say in Unisanatokev and other parts of Davening, or you see they're they're making their way through all the tefillah, it lifts everybody. And their not being there was was a big hole for me this year. Yisker well, and Yom Kippur.
3: Um, it, yeah, because I'm I'm dreading crazy. I'm so used to having Mr. Judavits up there. You're usually what? at a different minion. I usually do Yisker in the in the Rand Sanctuary on Yom Kippur and um i'm going to miss mr Judavit's there i mean there's something really powerful about his doing yisker and, and i'll throw in another population that you didn't mention that's kids you know mm, on one hand the cool. campus was quiet and there weren't a, there wasn't a lot of noise flowing through the hallways on the other hand you missed that a little bit Right? You miss that that sense of a little bit of vibrancy that the kids bring to the campus, that they're sometimes coming in and out saying hi to their right. parents, that they're going over and they're shaking some of the elderly people's hands. So you miss that also. You know, It definitely takes away from the community when certain demographics aren't there, for sure.
1: No question about it. And it was an eerie quiet. I commented to you afterwards. We normally have to hire guards and, and we have people who are very helpful to us in the hallway and making sure that kids aren't running back and forth. There's not a lot of noise that is produced. And it was an eerie quiet this year. Um, it was it was a benefit in some ways. It didn't disturb or disrupt the davening. In other ways, it was a really eerie quiet. Uh, we're very excited about our guest tonight. And uh, I'm going to bring him aboard. And I guess I'll, I'll introduce him while he's, uh, while he's on board. So, um it is a great honor and privilege to welcome Judge Alvin Hellerstein. Judge, thank you so much for being with us tonight. I'm joined by my colleagues, Rabbi Moskowitz and Rabbi Brody, and we couldn't be more excited to have you on board tonight.
0: I say that I'm overdressed.
1: You're you're not overdressed. I'm wearing a tie. Rabbi Moskowitz, you could feel free to take your jacket off. We were kind of sure. hoping you'd wear your robe, but I don't I know. know. I was going to
2: wear me. my robe, but they told me.
1: Is there a law? Is there a rule about wearing the robe when off the bench? Yes, it, it's said uh, it's too big, too bulky to carry around. So- That's an excellent rule. That's an <laughs> excellent rule. So many people know Judge Hellerstein; he's well known around the world. But I want to remind everybody about his illustrious background and and how um, incredibly uh, privileged we are to have him on tonight. Uh, judge Hellerstein is a senior United States District Judge of the United States District Court for the Southern District, which is a federal uh, judge position. He's presided over several high profile cases including the 9-11 cases, of which I know there was tremendous uh, justice served, but sympathy to, to victim, the family of victims. Maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that. Judge Celestine attended the Bronx High School of Science. He got a bachelor's from Columbia, uh, his law degree from Columbia, editor of the Columbia Law Review, um, served in the United States Army. We're so grateful, Judge, for your for your service. Um, served as a litigation in the litigation department as a lawyer, was a, a partner at struck and Levon and uh, was pr- president and chairman of the Board of Jewish Education. And as we said today, serves as a federal judge in New York, nominated by President Bill Clinton in 1998, and has a senior status uh, since 2011. But I would say that the position of his greatest distinction is he is the grandfather of my nieces and nephews. Uh-huh. Judge uh-huh. Elstein is my sister's father-in-law and, and beloved grandf- Judge Al. And,
0: and a great-grandfather
1: and a great grandfather of my great niece. Absolutely, she definitely deserves, deserves a mention. So it's really an illustrious background and Judge, you're incredibly accomplished in your life by any definition, but particularly as a observant Jew who you did not allow your commitment to, to Torah, to Judaism, to Jewish values in any way to hold you back from the position you attained. And, and I think that makes it even, even more special. And maybe we could start with that. If I can ask you, how, how is it different today To be an Orthodox Jew as a lawyer, in your case as a prominent judge, than it was when you began your career. When you first started out in law school and and when you began to, when you clerked and and when you served as a lawyer, what was it like to be a Jew in those arenas versus uh, today?
0: As a Jewish boy coming to interview law firms, uh, you met up with very strong discrimination, some of it overt, most of it implied. Um, even joining a Jewish firm uh, caused you to um, uh, lose status. You got less pay. Uh, Jewish firms worked on Saturday. Uh, they, got, they paid their employees on Saturday. And um, I joined the Jewish firm. and I, Then I was becoming orthodox as a matter of process. I wasn't yet uh, fully observant. But I told um, the partners who interviewed me that I would not work on Shabbat except in emergencies. And they had a firm meeting um, that decided to take me. I was the first Orthodox boy employed uh, by a Gentile or a Jewish firm uh, in New York City. Um, I was pleased to say that after me, that there were others. Uh, and some credited me with um, having broken the precedent. Uh, when I became a judge, it didn't make any difference if I was Orthodox or not. Um, it made no difference if I was religious or not. My capabilities as a lawyer uh, were measured, as well as my character and other uh, characteristics. But um, there was no discrimination. There is no discrimination that I could see. Um, I have Catholic colleagues, Protestant colleagues, and secular colleagues. All kinds of colleagues. Uh, we are one core.
1: Cool. that's wonderful. And have um, how does Judaism or how does your commitment to Torah and those Jewish values of which I've learned so much from you and we've had had wonderful conversations through the years, how does that influence your being a judge? you've You have people who come before you, and their destiny lies in your hands. Uh, whether it's the the judgment or the sentencing that you're going to offer and the impact on them and by extension, uh, their families and beyond, it's an enormous amount of power. And when you're trying to decide what's just, what's ethical, and of course, your your job is not to create the law, rewrite the law, but to apply the law. How would you say your your commitment to Judaism, your Jewish values? I believe that in your chambers, you have the pasach tzedek tzedek tirdof, justice, justice shall you pursue. And I know that, that that's something that you think about often. How would you say your Jewish values influence your, your being a judge?
0: I've often wondered. I don't know. I wrote an article about it in the Turo Law Review. Um, And um, I can't say that I would decide a case any differently than, for example, my colleague John Cottle went to Regis High School and is a a practicing Catholic. Um, Or anybody else. Uh, I don't know. I think that maybe that Judaism has played a role in being passionate about justice and equal protection, Uh, most pronounced, I guess, in sentencing. I I feel, and I have uh, various reminders about it, that I'm sentencing a person, uh, a person created by God, the same way I was, Perhaps I had more advantages in life. Uh, perhaps I took more advantages of the opportunities than he did. Uh, but he's a person who did a bad thing or several bad things. And I stress that I'm punishing him, not as a bad person because he's not, but for the bad things he does. Now, whether this results in a milder punishment, a severer punishment, what makes no difference in punishment, I can't tell. It's very hard to uh, equate what one judge considers a just punishment for what another judge considers a just punishment. Um, I just feel that it's my obligation to listen, to be compassionate, but then to apply uh, the law, as I understand it, through the sentencing guidelines and my own judgments. It's impossible to say, what role my Jewishness or my orthodoxy has um, in doing that. Mm. I think it does. There's a famous quote from um, Judge Justice Cardozo, uh, where he talks about the stream of experience that every person, every judge has, and how it must influence everything he does without his ability to be conscious of it, what to articulate what difference it would make. It's a fascinating question, which I've not been able to
1: answer. Yeah, we, we wouldn't ask you to weigh in on this, obviously, but that's part of the discussion now about the uh, potential nominees for the Supreme Court vacancy is, in some cases, their religious backgrounds, in other cases, but how much their life experiences and their other convictions impact their ability to apply the law, which is which is fascinating. Before The religious,
0: I the, the religious aspect should play no role. There was no... Uh, Um, no role for religion in our uh, officers and judges in the state. Law is blind in that sense. It should not make any difference if if I'm a Catholic, practicing or not, or Protestant, or atheist, or anything else. it's, It's the way you can have patience and understanding and listening ability on the bench and apply the law and a sense of justice. Right.
1: Before before I hand it over to Rabbi Moskowitz, did, did you, uh, had you ever met uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Do you have any reflections on what her loss means? The loss is great.
0: She's um, an exemplar of what a judge should be. Uh, I met Ruth when I was discharged from the Army, and I paid a, a, a visit to the judge I had been a clerk for, had uh, been Palmieri. Uh, Ruth was then her law clerk. Uh, his law clerk, um, and I heard him say many times, "The best he had." Um, you're a very attractive woman, um, very hardworking woman, uh, very precise about what she did, um, and uh, she went on to extraordinary successes. I was not a friend, but uh, I wrote to her from time to time, and when I was. Uh, Inducted as a judge, there was a ceremony in the Supreme Court where my wife and I attended, and uh, Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg made herself our host. Took us around her courtroom, took us around uh, her chambers. You um, gracious, very gracious person. Mm. That's a okay. great loss.
3: We're gonna judge f- Hellerstein, thank uh, you so much for,
0: for being on.
3: Um, you know, as a rabbi, we're asked very often to write letters, character letters, on behalf of people who are appearing before a judge. Um, and oftentimes we're asked to describe the person's commitment to community and their contributions and their volunteer efforts and what a wonderful person that they are. How does that factor into your decision making? You know, you were talking about how you try to view the person as a human being in front of you, um, a person who may have made bad decisions, but who was created in the image of God. Uh, what do these character letters mean to you? How do they factor into the decision process? Are rabbis wasting their time by writing these letters? Um, do they have an impact on you? How do those types of letters um, affect your decision-making? Um,
0: I receive letters from many people with, um, with many sentences. Uh, the fact that a, a person has family and friends and has good things about him uh, factors into the punishment. It doesn't uh, cancel the bad act, but it factors into the punishment. Um, it's it's unfortunate some people don't have families. They don't have any structure to their lives. No one loves them. And, and he or she loves no one. They're alone, alone to suffer the indignity of their crimes. And it's pitiful. But other people come with family and friends, some who travel great distances and sacrifice themselves. So I get many letters, written, handwritten letters from children, from nieces and nephews, from friends, from clergy. I read them all. And um, my colleagues, the same. And um, I can't tell you in any quantifiable way what consideration I give. Such letters, but you should not be dissuaded from writing it. Um, You should focus on what you know of the person personally, what that person means to you and to the community, and what that person does. Uh, Other people will write about the person in other capacities, but you should focus on what you know and how that person relates to you is himself. Herself, family, children, anything else—that's important. Um, though I can't quantify how important it is.
2: Your Honor, uh, first of all, it's an honor to have you here. Um, just uh, wondering—you know—I know you were very involved in in the case with the Chabad, with the Sfarim, and um, I'm just wondering—is there ever a time? You said that, that being, a, or you didn't say being a Jew, but you said religion doesn't play any factor in, 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 in the decisions in the courtroom. But sometimes there might be such a case where, you know, the impact is going to create a real Hillel Hashem, no matter what. And it's your decision. You have to, you have to make, a, make, make a, a judgment call. And I'm just wondering if there's any pressure that's put on you from community leaders, rabbis. Do they call in and say, listen, if you decide this way, it's going to be bad for the Jewish community. And how do you deal with that?
0: Well, I've sentenced people who were part of the Jewish community. Um, And uh, I know that since it's on the same community, that rabbis have been asked to call me and the like. And they've had the good sense not to. I wouldn't take the call. I wouldn't take the call. Um, And it's a great mistake because it will count to the detriment of the person who instigated the call. Um, it's a lonely job to sentence people Um, I may give my law clerks uh, discreet tasks to research this or that question but it's my decision and uh, I'm alone in that decision Uh, my uh, clerk schedules them for Fridays uh, Friday mornings and I have all of Shabbos to think about where I did. I never think I get it right. I feel I was too severe, I was too lenient, I was too compassionate, I got caught up in the arguments and so on. I never, ever have had the feeling that my punishment was just and measured. And that's good. I think a judge should uh, be discouraged, disconcerted by. What he does, I'm taking away the liberty of somebody, whether for thirty days or thirty years. That's awesome, and, and um, it weighs heavily. I know it weighs heavily in, in most of my colleagues. And all of us consider it the most difficult part of the job.
1: That's what that's what really makes you so special, Judge Hellerstein. You've dealt with just to piggyback that question. You've um, you've been the judge. You've adjudicated over some really high-profile cases, as we mentioned earlier, nine eleven. And um, very different, obviously, but Harvey Weinstein, Michael Cohn, uh, the case of the Hope poster with President Obama. Um, and that gets a lot of media coverage when they do. There have been some celebrities, some uh, social media influencers who's, who've come before you and had very sweet quotes afterwards about having appeared before you. We won't mention them, but...
0: Um, about, does not take one. Paris Hilton, yeah. before me. she had some lingerie brand that was knocked off um, and she came to court one time. And uh, there was a mention of page six of the post that I love that judge. He's so old. <laughs> that was her quote. <laughs> that, was, that was her quote. Exactly.
1: It was a, a, a ringing endorsement. Um, does, does the spotlight on you, you know, the, the awesomeness of the nine eleven cases – which I know took a very long time. And, and I imagine the way you described what weighs on you about um, taking away liberty, in this case, trying to offer comfort and solace and, and compensation to families of, of victims. Um, how does that impact you? The fact that the spotlight is shining and the media is covering and the articles will come out and the court of public opinion will have a lot to say about what you conclude. You know, we try to all have judgment in life and, and you much more um, acutely, that's not influenced or bribed or biased by things around us. how How do you try to close yourself off from the bigger picture or the media spotlight or the court of public opinion to really to really do what you think ultimately is right is just and and correct? You should cut yourself off.
0: You should be aware of of public opinion. Um, and um, newspapers um, on the media play a great role. We, we write. Largely for ourselves in courts of appeals, but the media writes for the people and the media plays a very important role in mediating or informing the public about what we do, which is extremely important. Um, I can't say that I don't enjoy publicity. One of my colleagues put it very well, it's like scotch. The first drink is extraordinarily good, and then it deteriorates after that. So (laughs) we shouldn't get used to um, uh, the public uh, display of of what we do. But the newspapers are valuable. During the 9-11 litigation, at one time, I had about 14,000 cases related to various aspects of 9-11. The newspapers are very valuable in bringing me information that was important, uh, for example, one lawyer represented thousands of people, not in a class separately, but thousands of people. Uh, that lawyer had problems with some of the clients and did things that some of the clients found improper or to their dislike. And um, a particular reporter brought it to my attention. And when it was uh, important, I called a conference. I gave her credit and I used it as a way of bringing up the conduct and examining whether it was proper conduct or improper conduct. I learned a lot from the newspapers. Mm. Uh, I encouraged reporters to call me. One Boston Globe reporter called me up at home on a Sunday, and I responded. I asked him, how do you know how to reach me? Uh, I haven't been listed for years. And he said it took me about five minutes to find out. So I concluded <laughs> that not listing uh, makes it difficult for my friends, but the enemies know right away. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I talk to reporters. I always limit myself to what's on the record. I don't give them other explanations. But the record can be very complicated, and I feel it's part of my job. But this is controversial, most judges feel different. It's part of my job to help them understand. They have a limited amount of time. They're not schooled. Um, and uh, they uh, they need help. But I'll just tell them what's in the public record and where they can find it. Um, anybody can find that. Um, they have always honored my request not to be quoted. And no one has abused that. Uh, the most um, active uh, critic of about me in the 9-11 litigation. She was a reporter from the New York Post. And I spoke with her a lot. And at the end of the case, I I had a kind conversation with her, and I thanked her for uh, never breaching the confidences of of our conversation. Um, And she said, you know, I have to do that. If I once breach, you'll never talk to me again. Right. So the reporter is finding value in my conversation. And I'm finding value in the other conversation. Now, the other aspect um, of of the public, there's several aspects. Part of the sentencing considerations, are one factor is respect by the public. So what I do must inform the public respect. If I treat a defendant too leniently, Will discriminate because of race, or background, or anything improper. I can be called on that, and and, and I'm aware of that. Um, I'm aware that the respect for the public by the public, the need for deterrence, uh, the punishment appropriate for the particular defendant—all these considerations are in the statute, and they don't harmonize, and I have to pick with them. Public respect is one important aspect. At the beginning of the 9 11 cases, I, I, um, when I saw that they were starting to build, I had to ask myself how I was going to manage them, how I was going to handle them. And and um, there's a lot of abuse in these mass tort cases, there's a lot of criticism of lawyers. Uh, they're asking too much, they're making too much, what they do is unreliable. You've heard it all. And I, I, I took a vow that whatever I would do, I would examine how I would think the public would react. And it was important that people have respect for the law and the process of the law. And so I made it a point to explain everything, to write for an educated layperson and for the newspaper reporter. And the newspapers treated me well. They were part of the process. They gave information. Uh, A lot of people had to make up their minds whether to join a settlement or not. The newspapers helped. Uh, So the answer is that the public public and the public respect are extremely important.
3: Mm.
1: Do you have a favorite ruling? Obviously, without diverging uh, details, but is there a creative ruling or a favorite ruling or an unusual case or something that stands out? Two.
0: Maybe three. Um, one was uh, a case where a uh, in uh, a, a, uh, a person who was here without credentials, we would call him an illegal now, but a person who was here without credentials was caught up in an, um in a in a coast to coast narcotics conspiracy, and I believe that he wasn't informed, didn't know. And uh, wasn't told. And so um, I refused to take his plea of guilty and told him that I didn't think he was guilty. I told his lawyer to um, work with the government to see if the government could understand that. I moved to dismiss the case. I was about to free him when I learned that uh, uh, customs enforcement, immigration customs enforcement, had what is called a detainer on him. So the moment he steps out of jail, he's locked up with immigration. So I kept him in jail. I got him a a pro bono lawyer. He's got his status uh, adjusted because his wife was a citizen and his 16-year-old daughter was a star student. Uh, And he became a naturalized citizen. And then I released him from jail. Mm. And um, he wanted to kiss my hand. And, of course, that's inappropriate. And I told him about the uh, the sign I have in my office of Tsevk Tsevk Tjerdolf. I told him that when, man, there are many reasons that are given for the repetition. But the one I favored is that we don't know where justice is. We have to pursue it. We have to look for it. And, and when an opportunity is given to have justice in the courtroom, justice in the eyes of the defense counsel, justice in the eyes of the prosecutor, justice in the eyes of the judge and the public. We have to thank him for giving us this opportunity. That's one case. Mm, Interesting. Another one, um, there was a home being made for uh, uh, people who had disability, mental disability. So, People grew up with them. They were first put in in some kind of a separate process uh, to nurture them when they were children, when their parents were young. But the the parents became old, and they couldn't take care of the children. And the children remained in these institutions of of various kinds. It's a bad word, but um, various homes. it's desirable to get them into the community. So the organization, the particular organization was able to find adjoining cooperatives in a building and buy them to put them together. The the, um, people in the cooperative were aghast. They did not want these mentally disabled people in the building. And I told them that if we are lucky enough not to have a disabled child of our own, Then our cousins had them, our friends had them. them. And I said, they're we, and we are they. I shamed them into rescinding their opposition and making a settlement, and I provided uh, that the organization would always have a supervisor in hand and limit the number of people to four.
1: And it worked out. Wow, that's fantastic.
0: So those those two cases, there are a couple of others like that, but it's, it's the little case. It's the case where you can directly do something that enriches someone's life, life that you can, you most love.
1: That's beautiful. We have time for one more question, Robin Moskowitz.
3: One more. Well, um, first of all, Judge, I want to thank you profoundly again for joining us um, this evening. And um, I guess you know my question is that we're right before um, the the Yom Adin, We're right before Judgment Day. We're going to come before the Judge of Judges. And um, I want to know if you have any advice for uh, as someone who sits and people come before you all the time. What is some advice that you have for everyone else who are coming before the judge of judges on Yom Kippur? Um, what works for you and what do you recommend for everybody else to have a successful judgment day?
0: Well, who is to tell the great judge how to govern my life? We pray, um, who shall li- live, who shall die. I can't make any suggestions. You're a much better placed um, mm-hmm. than I am to make those suggestions. Um, but I do feel that I have to account for what I do. Part of my accountability is to the Court of Appeals, where I can be reversed, and I often am. Another is my account to the individuals involved directly in the process. And third, I have to account to God. I, uh, my purpose in life is to be as good a judge as I can be. And uh, I have to ask for strength and wisdom in performing that job. It's sufficiently awesome to go um, dominate my life as well as loving my children my family um, be a friend I have and and others and that's part of it too so we're we're enriched in fulfilling what we do they're our mitzvot and we're enriched by those we love and who loved us And we have to pray that we will have the opportunity for another year to further that enrichment that's awesome
1: it is it is indeed and judge you are awesome and thank you so much for spending your evening with us we're happy that you're well and feeling well and uh, i couldn't be more proud that my nieces and nephews and great niece have your dna and your genetic material that bodes well for them and for their future and uh, we love you. We love having you as family, and we loved having you on our show. We wish you a gemar tov. You should have a healthy year, and a happy year, and a good year. You should be able to travel to Israel to see your family there and enjoy your family here in, in America. And I hope to see you soon and continue to learn from you. Thank you so so much for being I with mean, us tonight. I
0: want to say that I have two cousins who are great fans of yours. Who live in the in the community, and who tell mm. me all the time about how how wonderful you are in your shiraim and your rabbinic activities and i know myself how hard you work and and how you love your congregants and how much they love you so call it
1: thank you i appreciate you. it thank you judge take care thank you so much
0: yeah the Warm two God. fans are sitting right here
1: <laughs> 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 i don't know you're his cousins judge hellerstein is a um you know he, he's youthful, so you wouldn't know, but he's not a young man, and he easily could be retired, and he has this senior status, which has some advantages to it and some seniority to it. Um, but he's so passionate, so so passionate about what he does, and um, it's really inspiring and and beautiful. Um, for those who haven't seen, you can Google it. There's a great New York Times article that came out about Judge Hellerstein, who had a weekly regular tennis game. With some other prominent uh, leaders that are familiar, we didn't get to. There's so much more to talk about next time we can uh, we can talk to him. But Rabbi uh, Michael or Mickey Schmidman, um, and uh, there were other tennis partners as well. There was a the New York Times Rabbi or Rabbi Haskell Lukstein, and Jonah Kupietski. They had a regular tennis game in Manhattan, and that was a little uh, the fun side or softer side of the judge and and what he does. But I've learned a lot from him, and we still learn from him. And there's a lot more to talk about. You know, one of our one of our listeners posted in, in the chat. Um, to ask what exactly is the role of sentencing? Is it punitive? Is it rehabilitative? Um, mm-hmm. What is the goal in sentencing? Is it a deterrent? So please, God, we have to have the judge back again. He should be well, and we'll, we'll have him back, and we can ask him the whole other other round of questions.
3: I want to know how to do what was going through my head is the mission of Pirkei Avos have a Masunim Bedin. You should be judicious in, in the way you approach things, in the way you speak, in the way you approach justice, and uh, talk about someone who's so calculated, so well thought out, so aware of the various components. I'll just say, I don't know how your sister managed that first Pesach in that house, but... Uh.
1: <laughs> nerve-wracking. Trust me, <laughs> nerve-wracking. He's uh, very brilliant, very bright, very intimidating. I'll just show this great comment someone posted. Beautiful program, The Mench on the Bench. bench. I love it. Mench on the bench. <laughs> that is Judge Hellerstein. He is the mench on the bench. And it's the so good him. you ever call him to like if you get a like a speeding ticket, get out of the it is so good to have him. Um I have not I have not uh, done so. I, mean, um, he's he's God, I haven't needed, needed to. Favor. I've not I've not yet needed to call him that favor. I hope to always know Judge Hellerstein in the familial capacity and in no other. I have I have called on him for his wisdom and his good judgment. And he has offered it generously. He's been, he's been wonderful. So there's a lot to learn. I mean, the truth is it is an awesome responsibility if you think about it. I, I know that when I've testified in court on behalf of others and and you look up at that judge and you realize, like, you know, did they get a good night's sleep last night? What side of the bed did they wake up on? Did they have a fight with their spouse or children? Because all that's gonna influence, it shouldn't, but they're about to determine someone's fate. Lock them up, let them go, what the fine is, what the it's it's enormous, enormous we all have judgment in life, and we're all supposed to use good judgment, but that's judgment that really has an enormous impact.
3: No, what struck me was his usage of the word awesome, right? We use awesome. Oh, it was awesome. You know, see the game tonight, it was awesome. No, no. He meant it in that this is an, an extraordinarily awesome. Responsibility in, in the way that right. awesome really was meant to be used, um, and right. just the way he used it when he said that word. It's an awesome. That's what you know. That that's why I asked, that. That's what Yom Kippur is. Yom Kippur is awesome, right? Yom Kippur is an awesome experience, and it's an awe-inspiring experience coming before a judge and having mm. you know that that uh, experience. So that word when he said it resonated with me.
1: That's a great point you're making. There are words in our English language, which we've diluted and destroyed because we abuse them in so many contexts, right? So awesome means nothing anymore. It's awesome. You're awesome. That's a song's awesome. Things awesome. So the word awesome or days of awe don't mean anything anymore. What are other words you think in the English language, which have been used and abused that they no longer mean anything? A
2: mitzvah. mitzvah. You did go do it. It's such a mitzvah. Like your kid does any little thing. It's what a mitzvah. Yeah. You think it's
1: been abused and it's diluted?
2: Yeah, I don't. I think we use that word a million times a day. It's not. It's not really classically a mitzvah, but it's. Mm. You know. Go do
1: it. If, it's we, a- if we brought one of my kids on right now, they would tell you that I say all the time. I used to do it more often, but I think the word love has been abused, and it longer no longer has the meaning. So when my children will be like, I love that song. I love that cereal. I all love right. that whatever. I'll say you love it or you like it. You like the cereal, you love me. And I always say to them, and I think this in my mind, if you use that same word to describe your favorite food or your favorite song or your favorite vacation or your favorite whatever, that's the only word you have to describe the deepest, most profound way you feel from me. So are you sure you want to use it on a food or a song or something else because there's no other word or should we reserve that word for when we really mean it and say i really like or i adore or i think about or i'm obsessed with because kids like to use that word obsessed i'm obsessed i'm right. obsessed
2: i awesomely
1: love you well, that's good <laughs> i awesomely love you i awesome love you i want to bring up a comment from one of our big fans and we're fans of his, i hope season two is as sweet as one so please feel free in the chat whether on youtube or facebook if you're listening to the podcast later, rate and review. Make sure you take a moment to rate and review, but also be in touch with us and let us know your thoughts, other questions, comments, thoughts. Um, Gabe O'Hayon, our dear friend Gabe O'Hayon says, perfect guest have on Erev Kipper to hear from a judge about judgment and justice in Erev Kipper. Thanks, Gabe. That is a great comment as well. Please feel free to bring up topics in the comments that you'd like to hear from us. What topics do you have,
3: gentlemen? So I saw an article this week that uh, that I wanted to ask your opinion on. And the article's titled, New York Town of Swastika to Keep Its Name. That there's a town in upstate New York in the Adirondack Adirondack town located 50 miles from the Canadian border. It voted unanimously this week to retain its name called Swastika. The Mm. four-member board, which has authority over it, voted unanimously after five minutes of discussion. Now, the person who brought this before the board was a cyclist from New York City. Who happened to be cycling in upstate New York this summer, and he came across a sign for the town. He was bothered by it. He said, in a quote, I think it should be obvious that the town should update its name and should pick a, fa- a name that's not so offensive to so many Americans and so emblematic of intolerance, hate, and tyranny. Now, it took the board five minutes to unanimously reject that. And they said as follows They said, the word swastika doesn't mean anything, it means to prosper. It has nothing to do with Germany and Hitler. In and huge <laughs> response, I didn't expect a quick and unanimous vote. You should give everyone that blessing from the beam of this week. <laughs> <laughs> Which is does, does the fact that they retained a name, swastika, New York, bother you? Of course, it bothers me. It's absurd. And the truth is, if that word predated
1: its usage or being usurped by the Nazis then they are innocent for the town using that name beforehand. But now that we know what it means, we have other words which I am too afraid and sensitive that I would not use right now, which if a town was named that, but now it has other connotations and implications, we would never. If we're tearing down statues, I'm pretty sure we could change the name of a town, which became the symbol of The most heinous crime in all of human history, the atrocity that wiped out six million, a genocide. The swastika is, and I'm going to use the word literally, even though that's one of those words that's been abused and used. Here you go, Shul Sinek. It has literally, the swastika is literally the symbol of genocide against Jews. It is the symbol. It's a symbol. When it's appeared in fashion, the world went crazy. When it was appeared, on purpose, accidentally, in other contexts, we
3: went crazy. Of course it should be removed. The statues are being torn down, it yeah, should be removed. Conversations, in- all standard. There, there's a clear, I, why, whether it's the Jewish community tolerates this, and we just shrug our shoulders and say it's another example, but there are other communities in America right now that would not tolerate a town named it's such a hurtful, hurtful way.
2: Yeah, you know Interesting. I wonder if there's any Jews there. Imagine if there's like even one Jew and a Chabad starts up and he's the rabbi of swastika. But I don't probably probably know Jews there, but I remember when there was a couple who named their baby Adolf Hitler, but they were only found guilty after they were part of a neo nazi group you know, it was it mm. was illegal for them to name their child Adolf Hitler.
1: It was exactly ten years ago it was August two thousand and ten. They named all their children nazi inspired names, including one was named Adolf Hitler, and they only lost custody after domestic violence put the children at risk and abuse. Uh, I think the story is interesting, though, that the, the children themselves, how do you grow up with that name? I mean, what what trajectory of path does that set you on when you go to school and your name is Adolf Hitler?
3: Right. How do you write on your mail? I live in swastika. <laughs> I live in, hey, mom, I moved to swastika. Adolf Hitler, and I live in swastika. <laughs> We're making yeah. a joke of it, but but in all seriousness, you know, I read this article and I it just showed how sometimes it's what you've been saying for weeks, the double standard. Yeah, and right. I also think it's a little bit of the Jewish community just shrugged its shoulders at this and doesn't stand up for things that are offensive to us.
1: It's worth it. We should get involved. We should stand up and say something. I'll tell you, though, on a on a feel-good story, if you want a little bit of a feel-good story, I read a 96-year-old woman who bowled a 96. She's going to be 97 on November 30th. Her name is Sarah Lyons. I don't know if she's related to any Lyons that we know. And she bowled a 300 just a couple months before her 97th birthday. And when she was asked of the secret to staying young, that at 97, she could bowl a 300. Her answer was family. She, she has a ramp. Yeah. She, I don't know. Did the bumpers are up or down? I don't know. The story did not mention whether the bumpers were up or down, but she bowled a 300.
3: It's very years old. It's impressive. I
1: wonder how, how have you think the ball was?
3: Yeah. No, it's like in new England, they do candle pin bowling, which is like a very small ball. Have you guys ever bowled that way? Yeah, they have, no, no. England, they
1: small in, balls. In, in New York, we're real men. <laughs> what are you talking about?
3: First of all, you just no insulted way. a quarter of the country. But in New England, they have something called candle pin bowling, which is a very small ball. It's about the size of my palm. And the the pins are very narrow. They're very narrow pins. And it's a totally different system. Exactly. I never heard of it. I never <laughs> heard of it. But when, when you're 97, we'll let you use it.
1: Anyway, feel-good stories. Let's go from a feel-good story to a controversial one. We both read an article last week we wanted to bring up this week. Controversial, I'm not going to mention the author's name. He's a rabbi, not, not a large community rabbi. Uh, but he wrote an article, and the title of the article is, those who want to read it can look it up, Big Shuls are dying as intimate prayer groups rise. No holds barred, the democratization of synagogue life. This is a rabbi who loves debates and... Uh, for a lot of reasons, I, I don't want to debate him, but I would debate him on this one. I feel tremendously passionate about this. I couldn't disagree with him more vehemently, more vociferously. I couldn't disagree with him more about his about his conclusion. Um, I don't think big community synagogues are dying or need to die. I think there are circumstances that limit our operations right now. But I would tell you, if anything, the Rosh Hashanah, the on Synagogue, is right. evidence that his article is wrong. Right. It's wrong.
3: I'll even go a step further. I'll say that... Coronavirus showed that his that his hypothesis is wrong, and the fact is, is if anything that coronavirus showed me, it was just how important community is. I mean, think about what would have been missing in our community without having that sense of unif- unity, community, that big shul concept where everyone's right. looking for each other. Think about all the chesed, the meals that were arranged, the taking care of each other, all that was kind of like centered around the shul and spread forth from there. You would have been, you would have been lost without that, right? If you lived in a community with a shtiba on every street corner, it's a very different experience. And if anything, it's not just Rosh Hashanah. I think it's coronavirus, which shows mm. that when you have community, it represents so much more than just classes and sermons. It represents a philosophy. It represents a mindset. And I think that the world is craving that mindset now more than ever. Correct.
1: I agree. In fact, I'll read to you from his article. He writes. There's so much to be said about intimate prayer services. They're warm. They're more information-based than sermon-based. People get to know each other, and it feels like family. My experience is communities that are stabilized and you have a lot of small mignon everywhere, it not necessarily feels like family. I think people feel lost people feel invisible. I think actually when you have a community that is diverse, when you have a large campus and everyone feels like a family, we're going through things together. We celebrate together. We mourn together. We value together. We stand up for the same things together. We advocate together. We work together to create a sense of family and a sense of community. We had a new member event a few weeks ago. And uh, of course, socially distanced with masks. We were all very careful. Um, Something incredible happened. Two young couples who were sitting more than six feet apart from one another. But we go around, same hokey thing every year. Everyone says their name, where they moved from. And then we have some, you know, Favorite. restaurant in the world, right? Some, some funny feel good thing. So a couple spoke one after each other. And then one of them said, and I will not embarrass the community that they moved from, but they said, do you know that we lived a block away in another community for 10 years and we didn't meet Until we came to Raton. So, yeah, you could have, if you don't have community, if you have the stabilization, if every block is another minion, if everyone makes Shabbos for themselves, and I'm not knocking it, there are things that are beautiful about it. And and for some people, it works that way. But I don't think that community is dying. I think that we need to reinforce and re educate and re up more than ever. The notion of belonging, belonging to community. Just like this country is being so divided and fragmented, it's everything's a team sport, everyone's dug in, special interest groups. Whatever happened to patriotism, nationalism, caring, peoplehood? So community similarly. You know, it's not I make Yantif in my backyard and my way for my people, my convenience, my comfort. What happened to being part of community? What happened to connection of community? What happened to value of community? What happened to community transcending individualism? What happened to um, community being able to being so much bigger than the sum of its parts. It's community that lets you feel consequential, not invisible. It lets you feel you're part of a bigger family that cares and that matters. It's community that least you have an impact. Uh, and ultimately, in a world in which people are feeling lonelier than ever, community is, I think, what makes people belong. And if, if shuls are struggling to be a community, then that's on the shul and the shul leadership. Not to be a shul, but to be a shul community. There's a fundamental difference. We always say our goal is not for people to be members of the Bokerton Synagogue. Our goal is for people to be members of the Bokerton Synagogue community. And that is a fundamental difference. And I think it's up to Shuls to, to do that. And one of my children right now is texting like crazy that we should show the community video we just put out about how we got through Corona. And if we were in a podcast also, I would show, but on the podcast, you won't be able to see the video. Um, we'll put it on
3: we'll put it online we'll we'll send yeah, it out. we'll put
1: it online we'll put it up online we'll put it in the comments on youtube and on facebook for this episode and people should see the community video that was produced featuring the Booker on synagogue community over corona and what we did for one another and how we endured it with one another and we're still going through it together right now um we're still experiencing Sal salabity has a question one of our listeners Rabbi brody can you read his
3: question <laughs>
2: yeah, he said, am i awake i'm awake i'm listening to what you guys are talking about <laughs>
3: I'm,
2: hey,
1: I'm remember, now,
3: now, now i will say hold on i will say I, I did come from a smaller community, right? In other words, I grew up in Boston where it was one shul predominantly. I was in Holliswood, New York, where it was really one shul, um, and it was much smaller. And there's something nice, and you and I talk about this all the time, there's something a, a, sometimes nice about a smaller community, not a smaller show, but a smaller community where it has more of that like cheers feeling where right, everyone knows your right. name. And if you're not there on a Shabbos, the rabbi is going to call you up right afterwards and say, hey, you know, we only had 11 people in the minion, not 12 missed you. Right, um, and right. certain of those are not accessible to us. We're not able to do that because the size of our community, but that doesn't take away from the underlying effect and uh, benefit. Of a community versus a shul, and that's what you've done.
1: But what you're describing is very different. There's a fundamental difference between a small community, a relatively small community, and a big community made up of a million small shuls. Correct, correct. So I just wanted to to make that differentiation.
3: I would also point out. That we work hard here to balance community with individual. And those no one should think that this is like some, you know, totalitarian government where you have to suppress your own individual individuality to because of the, the needs of the of the many. Right. We work right. really hard. We What's have, you know, grew up in. no, I'm saying in, in normal circumstances, we have eight minyanum on Shabbos this morning, each one catered to a different population. So we try to embrace your individuality, but bring right. it into the community. We, we don't want you to give up that individuality. We want you to bring your own flavor and what you represent and put it into our community. <laughs>
1: Sal, I owe you a phone call, by the way, from Rosh Hashanah. But anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, talk, we'll talk about that offline. Only, only you, I'm just joking. So How good did that feel? My neighbor and my dear friend. Uh, but yeah, we, we, off, we obviously feel very passionate about community. And community doesn't mean everyone has to conform right? We have many, 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 many Ashkenazim and and older and younger and left-wing and right-wing and fully observant and people who are Chuva and people who are not yet observant whatsoever. We can all still be a community and operate and live together in one place. And I think that's our mission and our goal. The more splintered, the more divided, the more dug in, the more team sport, it does not serve the Jewish people in terms of the Jewish problem and it doesn't serve on the bigger problem. Uh, I'll tell you what's what's interesting is I saw another article that was Another angle of a similar phenomenon. Everybody's trying to extrapolate from COVID what that means for the future of, of Jewish community and shuls. So the one article that we just spoke about was uh, big shuls are dying as intimate prayer groups rise. This was another op-ed. COVID has not created a shul davening problem. It has revealed one. Rabbi Pesach Sommer, very interesting uh, Person uh, posts a lot on Facebook, is a Rebbe, and psychic, very, very interesting uh, individual, causing me to think often. So he wrote an article saying that COVID's not created the problem, it's revealed one. The fact that people, this can be a little controversial, but it's his point, not mine. The fact that people have been so slow to come back to shul and they say, look, shul doesn't do it for me, even though they can. It's not that there's a problem in shul, but what are all the aspects of shul that are missing right now? They're very important ones, socializing, connection, community, kiddish. But the davening, which is the central part of shul, the core part, talking to God, connecting with God, feeling in the presence of God, being in a sanctuary, which is filled with sanctity, which is the core reason we're there. Complementary reasons are to see friends, connecting community, based knesses. Those are very, very important. Kiddush, Simcha, very, very important. But the core reason is to daven. And what COVID has done is it's reduced shul down to its core. And so it's also filtered out who's coming for the core. And who's coming for the compliments? And that's okay, but it's an interesting discussion to have. Thoughts?
3: That, that is an interesting discussion. I've heard that from people. I've heard that from people who told me directly. They said, you know, Rabbi, um, if, if all I can do is walk into Shul Daven and walk out and I can't say hi to people and I can't have that social outlet and that connection, Shul for me is about connection. It's the only time of the week that I get together with the guys and we make a la'chaim together and we have some herring together. Then, uh, then what's the point of coming? Um right. and um I agree with him 100%. It's revealed a lot about how you relate to to shul and shul life.
2: And that's why I think a lot of guys like the neighborhood minyanim because there there's no one telling you you can't talk to one another. If anything you are davening, but you do get to say hello. In fact, when I was walking out of shul this past Rosh Hashanah, I was walking out with one of the with a member from from the shul and the guard like we just walked out together. Like we weren't talking and then we were just saying, you know, hello, literally hello and the guard said you can't talk. You guys got to, you know, disperse. We weren't talking. We were like, hello, good Shabbos, good Yantif. Right.
1: It is uh, a very dry, cold, sterile environment. That's very hard. And, and the rabbis, we're also equally pained by that. You don't think we love seeing you? You don't think we love hugging you? We don't love connecting to you? We're equally pained by that. My suggestion is not this is a good thing. Oh, we got rid of all the other stuff. Now it's just Daphne. It's not a good thing at all. We are as desperate and longing for that to return as you are. But this is a real litmus test. This is a real mirror holding up to us to asking, why, fundamentally, why do I go to shul? Not do I enjoy the other parts also, but fundamentally, why do I go to shul? And if I'm not going because the other parts aren't there, then maybe I need to work on or think about my connection to Hashem, my wanting to feel in His presence. Do I talk to Him? I know you could
3: talk to Hashem at home too, but very, very interesting conversations. I will tell you, and I, I said this on Rosh Hashanah, just to bring it full circle, it was really nice to hear the campus is full again on Rashad. And even though it wasn't mm. perfect, and as you said, there were so many people that we missed and so many people that weren't there. It, w- right. it felt really good to be walking room to room and to crisscross the campus, you know, speaking and wishing people a good yantiv It felt really, really good to see people in a way that you and I haven't experienced since Purim. And it just, I, it, right. it brought tears to my eyes. It choked me up and it, it made me, it, it was a really good feeling. Wow. And there were a lot of people that
2: said to me, you know, like, this is the first time back in shul. I'm just curious to see what happens after Yontif is all over. You know, Sukkot is done. The following Shabbos, are people going right. to come back again? Is it I hope
1: be- now that if, if they see that we've set it up in what we hope and believe and have tested to be a safe environment, hopefully they will come. Rabbi Brody, look, we have one minute left. Um, there's always so much more to talk about, but you ran a beautiful uh, event over Rosh Hashanah. You're going to do it again, Yom Kippur. You're out, you're, you're, we, Bokerton Synagogue, yeah. our movement, we are a dedicated outreach. outreach rabbi, one of the few shuls. I'm going to speak about actually Motze Shabbos and the Shabbos Shuvaj, mm-hmm. Russia. Milton Friedman, the great economist, said, "If you want to know what people care about, go check where they spend their money. Check where their budget.
2: Yeah, they can spend more money. By the way, it's okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We we have a dedicated outreach rabbi because we value and we care about outreach. Tell us about the service, (coughs) the outreach service that you
2: ran. It was much smaller this year, and thank God you had a chance to come in and and give some d'vor Torah. But unfortunately, because of COVID, you know, people are staying away. Normally, we could have 450. We had about 50." And I hope, I really, really hope that next year we can just kind of pick that up again. We know where they are. We have all their emails. We've been in touch yeah. with the programs throughout the year. But it's really, really hard when you look at a room and it's just it's a fraction of what it could be.
1: It's a hard. very, very prominent non-Jewish woman who joined looking for yes. some spirituality. And, and Judaism is not supposed to just inform the Jews. Judaism is supposed to shape and mold the world. So I don't know, Rosh Hashanah, it's unusual when people come, but I think we can be proud when a, a non-Jewish person says, you know what, I want Judaism to inspire and inform me. It's obviously delicate, complicated, when and how, but we can feel good that that's where they turn to for spirituality and strength in, in a time like this.
3: Can you, just peaked, you just piqued a lot of people's interest, by the way. Yeah, I know. A very. Pro,
1: it was a very for, prominent,
3: a very prominent, the most prominent probably.
1: A Boca Raton prominent personality, but we can't. Maybe she'll come on behind the beam at one point. Should
2: be great. Should I be guess thing. You know, last week we spoke about like what we want to see this year. You know, and I mentioned that I want to raise a lot of money. I have a big project. We're all working on project. I got to tell you, there's one guy that reached out to you, and then you forwarded me the email. I've already spoken to this guy like ten times today. We spoke for an hour. Wow emails. He already got me two books. I'm telling you, he's like, I said, I want to raise a million. He says, a million? I'm disappointed. <laughs> what about five million? Let's go for five. <laughs> I love it. Man. I love it. This guy really, he's made, I can't say his name. He's, she works for another charity but i don't want
3: to what's a story that surprised you rabbi goldberg tell leave people with an inspirational story something that you've experienced over the last couple weeks that has uh, moved you inspired you act of giving an act of kindness an act of something this is not a setup
1: i I didn't tell you to set me up for this but this is a great way to go out and um, we still have a few people listening so it's always good to have you on if you're listening on the podcast rate and review i'll I'll tell you a story although this punchline i haven't been able to tell the person yet but um i I don't think they're watching so i'm not worried about that they're they're much I'm I'm, whatever. But I'll tell you a story that blew me away today. It blew me away. You know, we've had a couple, just two, and not connected to the shul, but younger people in the community who tested positive. doesn't impact the shul, no outbreak, no spread, nothing for us to warn. Nobody should panic. Um, But um, in one of those cases, there's a friend who um, had to quarantine because they were exposed to somebody who was positive, 17-year-old young man. And he uh, began his quarantine, he took a test, and he was negative. And his biggest concern was, can I go to and yom Kippur? So I was talking to the parents. The parents I, I spoke to our task force. And even though several days of the quarantine have gone by um, and he tested negative, the task force said, 14-day quarantine. I'm sorry. just We can't bend these rules. We can't take any risk. So the father said to me, can you call him? Can you tell him? It'll mean more coming from the rabbi. You have to explain to him why he needs to stay home this year. So I called the boy this afternoon, 17-year-old boy. Now, I, I want you to put yourself in his shoes for a minute. Yom Kippers coming up, 25-hour fast, endless davening, davening in a mask. And the rabbi calls you and says, you get the day off. I got news for you. Daven, then lie on the couch, read a book, Sports Illustrated, learn a safer. You got the day off. You're going to be home. No mask, comfort of your home, air conditioning, not your fault, nothing you can do. You've got the day off. So the 17-year-old boy didn't say to me, I understand, Rabbi, thank you with like a smirk and a smile because he's got the day off. He's got to pass this year. It actually reminded me of like the story of Pesach Sheni and Lama Nigara, 17-year-old normal boy in our community, like sports, learning, great family, amazing young man, says to me, Rabbi, please, begging you, Monday will be day eight. What if I take another test Friday? What can I do so I can come to Shul and Yom Kippur? And I tell you, I'm even you know moved almost to tears right now. I, I was blown away. 17 years old, he didn't say, I'll take the out, I'll stay home, I get a pass. The rabbi gave me the pass. He said, it's not fair to me. What can I do? I'll do anything. I went back to the task force. Task force said, even though it'll be day eight, day nine, even though I'll take a second test, the rules are inflexible. We can't play with them. It's 14-day quarantine. There's nothing we can do. And I've got to tell him that. But I am absolutely in awe, in awe by how badly he wants to be in Yom Kippur with that mask, with the discomfort, with the everything you know every day i learn from others i posted on on social media maybe this is what you were trying to set me up for for the story of the of the note i opened my mailbox and in, in my door in shul and there was an envelope unmarked at my name. It was not signed by anybody. And it said, please distribute this to people who need help for Yanta. This was before Hashanah, And it was five $100 gift cards to kosher supermarkets in our area. Those are the heroes. Those are the unsung heroes. Don't sign their name. Stuck at the highest level. Just help other people. This 17-year-old boy, nobody will know the extraordinary gesture of his begging and pleading with the rabbi. Please find a way so I can come to shul. This is the best part of the rabbinate. The best part. There's a lot about planning Yom Kippur, which is the worst part of the rabbinate. Maybe you want to reference a friend of yours letter, but there's a lot of challenges this time of year and a lot of people who disappoint and it hurts. It's personal. It's emotional, even when they don't mean it to be. But this is the best part of the rabbinate. Seeing the best in people, the extraordinary in people, the hope in people, the faith of people. It is the best part of the rabbinate. I love it. It moves me. It inspires me. And even though I didn't prompt you to ask that question,
2: thank you for asking it. Don't call me. You won't be in all about. (laughs) it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not calling you. Don't worry. Don't
0: you want worry. It, but it won't be
3: no, I had a similar thing today. And that's that's honestly what inspired the question was, you know, someone someone texted me last night and they 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 know we have a specific fund in the shoal and they were asking about the fund and you know whether it was getting low on funds and they wanted to make a sizable donation to it and they don't want recognition for it. They don't want their name and lights for anything. And 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 I agree with you, it's those types of stories that you and I, the three of us, are privileged to hear, which, uh, which give us hope in humanity. I know that sounds so trite, but it really is. It's good people who aren't looking for the limelight. They're not looking for a post on social media. They're just doing the right thing because it's the right thing, and they want to make the world a little bit of a better place. And you and I get to be on the sidelines watching for that, and I, that's the best part of our job, far and away.
1: Absolutely. Gentlemen, rabbis, season two, episode one, in the books. In the books. books in the books we are an hour and nine minutes in we went nine minutes over maybe for season two we should go up to an hour and a half what do you think add more time there's always more to talk about i'm just joking everyone could ex- exhale breathe relax. <laughs> we're, we're all good but i want to thank you for being with us a very special thank you to judge alvin hellerstein who is the family friend and, and inspiration. We thank him for joining us. We want to wish all of our listeners, whether you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, whether you're listening to our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review. Our past sponsors and our future sponsors, please help support the BRS family and the BRS movement. All the money goes to BRS. The money's not for us. It helps advance uh, what you heard about a little bit about tonight about community. But we want to thank you and we want to wish all of you a Gemar Chassima tovah, a good year of health, Happiness of Baracha Tzlacha Shalom Brios Nahas. It should be your Komishalas, the should answer all of our requests for the good. Until next time, stay happy, remain, stay healthy, and stay holy.
0: Thank you for listening to Behind the Bima. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week for another peek behind the Bima.